Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, in light of the world's forests being on fire, from the Amazon to Indonesia, we're revisiting a 2017 episode about the future of food. Our hunger for which, whether in the form of beef or palm oil, is driving a lot of those fires. The way we've lived for the past few centuries, with relentless colonialism and resource extraction, has left its mark not only on the abstract lines between countries and continents, but on the planet itself. Oceans are rising and acidifying, killing off certain species and allowing others to proliferate. What will the act of eating look like 30 years from now? 50? 100? To imagine that future, we're talking this week with a novelist and a chef, Alexandra Kleeman and Jen Monroe, who dreamed up what a dinner party might look like 30 years in the future, hovering on the border between science fiction and reality. Then they threw that dinner party with a couple dozen pounds of seafood in the corner of a restaurant in Brooklyn. We'll join them there as they're preparing for their meal. So please excuse any clatter in the background. I was eavesdropping on them while prep was going on. Alexandra Kleeman is a fiction writer, the author of the prize-winning novel You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine and a short story collection. Her work pulls from science fiction, dystopia, fairy tales, the weird, and she recently started thinking about what that would look like translated into the world of food. I've always been a big science fiction reader, dystopia fan, uh, as much as you can be a fan of dystopias. I was thinking a lot about those issues at the exact same time that I was getting into um, heavily stalking Jen's Instagram. Jen Monroe is a chef based in Brooklyn who runs a food project she calls Bad Taste. Pop-up dinners that explore new ways of thinking about food and consumption as bizarre fantasy and unfamiliar territory. I really loved her food. It didn't seem like it could take anything for granted. It made uh, me feel sort of like I was new to this planet. And that, I think, is the emotional motor that runs um, a science fiction novel or a far-future dystopia. 
So they teamed up with an event group called the Bellwether to create what they called the next menu. Alex sent Jen pictures of translucent jellyfish at the Staten Island Asian market, and Jen got to thinking about what to do with them. Here's Jen. So we were talking a lot about um, climate change as it's going to affect the oceans, and we wanted to do a dinner that's going to be um, kind of the interpretation of what seafood could look like at some point in the next 30 years. 30 years is the sort of arbitrary timestamp on it because it's within our lifetime. It's not sci-fi. It's not like really far outside of the realm of reality as it stands right now. And the changes that are going to take place in that time frame are maybe seemingly subtle um, in terms of the way that they affect food availability. But in the grand scheme of things, they're actually serious and are going to have some pretty large scale ramifications. To figure out what to serve in that in-between space between the familiar and total change, they started to think about what might still be around 30 years from now. Ingredients that are adapting well to climate change, or are even possible models for how we might eat sustainably in the future. So we were talking a lot about things like algae, which are, um, their lifespans are so short, they, they go through such rapid cycles of reproduction that they're actually able to evolve very, very quickly. And so they are showing signs of quite literally being able to evolve to rising ocean temperatures and acidification and things like that, which is is really exciting because they seem like they're going to maybe be just fine. Um, Things like octopus, which are are being referred to as the weeds of the sea because they are also experiencing a population explosion and no one quite knows why, if it's in spite of global warming or if if it's directly because of it. So things like that, things that we wanted to kind of experiment with, maybe slightly more alien textures. There's a lot of seaweed in this menu because seaweed is also doing pretty well. And there are actually quite a few kinds of invasive seaweed that that seem to be thriving in the oceans right now. A lot of the reports I had read said that major changes to the agricultural system would be more 50 years out. um, And major changes to what we were able to get from ocean ecosystems or marine environments would be closer, like 20 to 30 years. And so um, there was this question of what point to aim at. And I thought that the ocean was sort of a more vulnerable environment to highlight and show the sort of new foods and newly edible substances that we would be using in the future. So when guests walked into the restaurant one Friday this fall, they were met by enormous quantities of salt, covering the tables in dunes and in salt sculptures, encrusted mussel shells and bottle caps and shards of plastic and even an iPhone all covered in salt. And then a voice would start reading, something about strange creatures with infinite fins, or a fruit factory, or a person keeping a fishbowl from disappearing underwater. Short pieces that Alex had written to figure out what life and everyday eating and our relationship with food might be like 30 years from now. We walked along the shoreline, collecting traces of things that still lived out there in the greenish, still waters. Thick-shelled halves of clams and mussels, washed-up jellyfish that looked like glitches in the landscape, oblong blurs in the sand. Life was sparse, but it was still there. But in the future, don't worry. According to this menu, at least, we will still eat main courses. And for the main course of the next menu, guests got to eat an entire bowl of an imagined ecosystem, one based on a hopeful model for shrimp farming, which might actually produce enough shrimp to feed our enormous hunger for them, but sustainably. It is growing shellfish, shrimp, and seaweed together, and so the shrimp 
go about their business and create shrimp effluent, which is one of the kind of major polluting problems of shrimp farming altogether, is what to do with all this um, shrimp runoff, to put it politely. Um, but the benefit of adding shellfish to the scenario is that they're filter feeders, so they can filter out the waste and um, survive on it, and in the process create another crop effectively. Um, and then seaweed acts as a, a way to kind of reoxygenate and circulate the water and kind of keep everything nicely balanced in the pool. So um, the dish is this shrimp farm ecosystem in a bowl. Um, so it's a, a very concentrated dashi stock with um, wakame seaweed, a little pile of, of steamed mussels in the middle. Um, and then guests are encouraged to drop little half spheres of fermented shrimp based jelly um, to drop them into the soup and then stir it around so that the jelly dissolves and that's kind of acting as the like inoculation of the ecosystem with your shrimp. But that's only one model, one way of imagining the future. Alex and Jen wanted to talk about something a little bit more ambiguous, more uncertain. We um, were sitting across from one another and I was talking about how frustrating it is also to sort of have to choose one of um, the sociocultural possibilities out of many different ways in which society might adapt to a shortage or to scarcity. Um, And I outlined sort of five basic ways that I thought we might cope with not having our favorite food so available. And she, she sort of paused me and said, what was that phrase that you said, five futures? And we went back and uh, thought about each one of them in order. And so the dessert is five different little bites that each represent a different avenue. The first one, which is door number one, um, is a world in which, quote, fine dining, unquote, is able to elevate foods that were formerly undesirable. So the course is a tiny spoonful of um, jellyfish buttermilk sorbet. Um, Jellyfish have been used in Eastern cooking for ages, but Western culture kind of has yet to catch up, and jellyfish are completely taking over the ocean, and they're a really excellent source of protein and and very readily available. So we're sort of waiting for for the rest of the world to catch up and figure out how to eat these things, because it it just makes sense. The second is a tiny apple pie uh, as kind of a nod to farm-to-table cooking, but not out of a a trendy place, but coming out of a more necessary place, like if global food chains collapse to an extent where we have no choice but to only eat what we're capable of growing or trading for ourselves. Three is the instance that is maybe the most sci-fi element of the whole meal, is if we have completely abandoned food as food and instead have turned to getting all of our sustenance from gels and pills and supplements. And so it's a, a his and hers square of jello effectively we thought a lot about how um, marketing would go in a world where all food was was manufactured in a laboratory effectively so it's um it's a two-tone jello half of it is for men and half of it is for women we were kind of thinking about ridiculous gender marketing so the the half for women is pink it's strawberry flavored and it's infused with biotin which is for nice hair skin and nails because everyone knows that women are supposed to be beautiful and then the um kind of greenish blue half which is for men is bacon flavored uh, and it has omega-3s in it for better brain function because everyone knows that men are supposed to be smart and then the fourth is kind of the most hunger gamesy option it's a world in which um, formerly desirable and frequently consumed foods are still available but they're so rare and in such short supply that they have become very very expensive um, so we think about things like a, you know a piece of fruit being sold for auction at hundreds of dollars Um, And for this course in particular, I was thinking about uh, colony collapse disorder and all the changes that loss of bee populations will will have on the way our food chains work. So the the food course is um, a very small square of fig, a little dab of very delicious yogurt, 
um, which is made locally, and then a, um, a small piece of raw honeycomb with a little bit of edible gold leaf on top. So the idea is that it's kind of eating a bee agriculture ecosystem in one bite because uh, wasps and figs have a very intimately intertwined reproductive cycle. They, they kind of need each other, and um, in order for a fig to grow it, it ultimately has to have a wasp die inside of it to be fertilized. So eating fig and honey together kind of turns into a sort of like a chicken and the egg situation, you know, eating the parent and its offspring at the same time. Um, and then garnishing it with a little bit of gold leaf is sort of a nod to fetishism and to exploitation, I guess, and, and covering it with, with literal currency as a way of marking it as such. And then the fifth and final course is a, um, I guess it's not even really a course because it's not edible. It's an empty muscle shell that has salt crystals grown all over it. So it sort of looks like a piece of jewelry almost, but it, it also kind of acts as a reminder of what happens when these shells kind of represent ghosts of animals and food sources that are no longer available you know what happens when the ocean quite literally becomes empty and all we have left are fossils from species gone by and what if we we can't adapt at all and what if what if all of our adaptations aren't enough right before we got there i had been talking about this short story that was really um important to me or it was a big influence on me when i was a child my mother is a japanese literature professor and um she had mostly books in Japanese, but some in translation. And when I was much too young, like eight years old, I read uh, this book of Japanese uh, sci-fi short stories that she had, and uh, they were very dark. <laughs> um, one of the ones that stuck with me the most was about Sakyo Komatsu. He had a story called Choose Your Own Future. It was a story where a man enters a sort of nondescript office building. He waits in a waiting room. He goes in and a woman behind a desk explains to him that uh, he has three doors that he can look behind and each door is going to show him a picture of a different future and he'll be able to choose which one he'd like to have come true. And um, it may not happen within even his lifetime, but he can rest secure that he knows the true outcome. That sort of question has driven a lot of my work since then. Because of the sort of entertaining structure of um, a lot of post-apocalyptic literature, you know, you've got dangers, you've got a journey, you've got threats and heroes and, and the type of resolution or safety that's usually reached. Um, I thought, what if we could sort of still or slow down that sort of narrative momentum and focus on the world that you would occupy, focus on... Um, what it's like to have your food sources reconfigured or rewired, what it's like not to be able to order up the things that feel like home to you and um, have to find your home in the place that feels unhomelike. I want eating this meal to feel like an encounter, like um, you're meeting something new. And I think that Jen's food brings that automatically. That's the experience I had when I first saw still photos of it. You know, um, I was actively trying to figure out, like, what is this? But I want them first to encounter their food as an other. And then um, I want them to think about when they leave what it would be like to walk into this sort of context every day and have it be the new normal. Is there a place for them in this world that is posited by this food? Is there a way in which this experience, even though it's a great experience, is a warning? But there's something exciting about the idea, I think, of spending time on another in another world, as long as you know that time is limited. So slow down a little bit. 
pull up a chair at the unheimlich dinner table. Choose a door. Maybe even choose a future. Grab some Soylent or Jello or some jellyfish sorbet. Here's the piece that Alex wrote to close out the menu. I looked down into a large glass bowl. In the water was a small fish, small enough to lie in the palm of my hand. Its body was silver and shone in the dim light. It was shaped like a long, thin leaf. The fish was alive. It swam in slow circles or hung in place, its small fins paddling rapidly. But where its gills should have been, its body was smooth. And then, on the underside, two small sacks the size of a fingernail, pale pink and marked by a faintly branching red. I watched it swim to the surface and gulp at the air. The delicate tissue on the underbelly swelled and deflated. Tiny lungs. The bowl was not deep, but it was wide. Filled with water, it became incredibly heavy. It had to be carried close to the body. Tilt it just an inch and water spilled over. The little fish slid towards the rim of the bowl. I wrapped one arm protectively around the round glass and the other underneath, and I carried it with me toward the light at the far end of a long, long hallway. To my left and right, long-haired women sat on long benches, following me with their eyes as I walked past. When I faltered, when the bowl seemed to slip around in my grasp, they sighed or laughed or covered their faces with their long, thick hair. In the hallway, the water level was rising. I had noticed it at first as a wetness of the tile, like the floor had just been mopped. Now it lapped over my toes as I walked barefoot toward the end. The long-haired women worried for me as I made my way through the water. They gestured, suggesting to me that I might hold the bowl differently, straighter, that I might put the bowl on my head to keep it a maximum distance away from the water that was rising so slowly, but rising nevertheless. I pulled the little fish and its measure of water closer to my body. I tried to hide it from their view. When I reached the end of the hallway, there was nobody there, only five numbered doors and a small desk with a pad of paper. I was having trouble standing. The water had risen past my knees and was tough, salty. It swayed me, which caused the little lung fish to tilt in its bowl. Someone had written on the paper, Choose your future. Pick a door. I looked at the doors. They were all identical in shape and size. They had doorknobs that looked fairly shiny, fairly new. The only difference I could see was the signs, each of which had a different number that was painted in a different arbitrary color. I stood there holding the bowl as the fish swam circles inside. How could I choose, knowing so little about the situation? What type of world was behind each one of these doors, and how would I live into the world I had chosen? All I could be sure of was that the world I chose would not be like my own. It would not naturally have a place in it for me. 
The water level had risen to my hips, brushing against the bottom of the fishbowl, though the fish seemed unperturbed, its delicate lungs pulsed in time with an unknown rhythm. The future was coming whether I chose it or not, whether I acted or waited. As I stood there, as the water rose, it was already coming, water up to my stomach, water up to my teeth. It was coming at a speed that was too gradual to perceive, but too fast to adjust to. In fact, it was nearly here. I lifted the bowl and held it up above my head. Seen against the brightness of the ceiling light, its body was perfect, fragile, precious. A quick shard of life darting in small space, a thing I knew, or hoped I knew, could survive the flood. There are photos on our website of the entire dinner. There's a link in the show notes. Big thanks to Jen Monroe and Alexandra Kleeman for talking to me while they were furiously trying to prep dinner for 45 people, and to Jordan Kisner, Danny Lencioni, and Drew Broussard at the Bellwether for all their help. Danny is the one who read the short story you just heard. Jordan, coincidentally, is a contributor to the magazine. She wrote a beautiful essay on a massive aspen grove in Utah, which, just like the oceans, is, spoiler alert, threatened by climate change. Check it out. Thanks also to Stephen Akers, who let us use his gorgeous photographs for the meal. Our theme music was composed by Nathan Perlman, and this episode we also used music from Mind's Eye and Broke for free from the Free Music Archives. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode about the future of fashion in the midst of climate catastrophe. In the meantime, don't forget to tell all your friends about your favorite little podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and enjoy Labor Day weekend. We'll see you next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.